We thank you, Father, for every mercy and for the great purpose, Lord, that we are assembled as your people to worship you this night. As we have sung your word, we now pray for much grace to hear it, to hear it taught, to hear it expounded in truth and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, as this teaching of your word tonight speaks directly to your people who are blessed to be parents who have been given a heritage from you and their children, Lord, we pray that there will be much grace given to those of us who are parents here tonight that we would have our eyes open to behold wondrous, challenging, encouraging, comforting, and indeed convicting things that your word teaches us concerning child-rearing and that for your glory and for the sake of Christ. It is in the name of our Lord Jesus we pray these things. Amen. Well, I invite you tonight to open up God's Word and let's turn to Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 15. Proverbs 22 and verse 15. As we consider this evening what I've entitled very simply, A Child's Need for Discipline. A Child's Need for Discipline. Proverbs 22 and verse 15 reads, Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Read that again. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from from him. And so reads God's infallible and inerrant word. We return this evening to our continuing series in the book of Proverbs, where for the past three weeks we have been on unpacking major themes scattered throughout Proverbs. So far we've looked at the power of the tongue and the marks of godly friendship. But since last week, we've started to consider the subject of parenting. When you canvass the whole of God's Word as it concerns parenting, you discover that the book of Proverbs is the most extensive and explicit resource on child-rearing in the Bible. And when it comes to what we can describe as biblical parenting, what Proverbs emphasizes as a key component is the discipline of of the child. The Hebrew term translated as discipline in the book of Proverbs is muzar, which refers to an educational process that entails the shaping of one's character. Discipline in the home, then, according to the book of Proverbs, is both instructive and corrective. Christian parents must therefore be about the constant business of applying discipline to their children. This comes by way of imparting the knowledge of the truth, 
combined with identifying and correcting the sinful ways of the child and urging the removal of, of such rebellion. To summarize it in the words of Ephesians 6 and verse 4, as Christian parents, we must bring our children up in the training and instruction of the Lord. But why is discipline so necessary in the raising of our children? Well, answering this question will be the burden of our study this evening from the book of Proverbs. We will see the necessity for discipline from four vantage points. First, for the sake of the child. Second, for the sake of the parents. Third, for the sake of society. And then fourth, for the glory of God. To begin with then, let's notice that discipline is for the sake of the child. Proverbs 22.15 begins to show us why discipline is so necessary for our children. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Why do our children need discipline? It's because folly is bound up in their heart. What these words are teaching us is the biblical doctrine of original sin. By definition, original sin describes our fallen, sinful condition out of which actual sins occur. And the Word of God is replete with this particular doctrine. You see several scripture references that I have listed there, and I will go through these and read them to you, the first of which begins with the first book in the Bible. Genesis 6 and verse 5, we are told the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and then note this, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart, you see where the problem is, every, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And then we turn to Job, and there are two passages of Scripture in Job that speak to the doctrine of original sin. There is Job 14 and verse 4. What, or excuse me, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? There is not one. Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? There is not one. There is not one. A sinful parent cannot reproduce an unsinful or a non-sinful person. Okay? Your children are born in sin. Another verse of scripture here in Job, Job 15. You don't have to go too far. Job 15, verse 14, rhetorical questions what is man that he can be pure or he who is born of a woman that he can be righteous they're rhetorical you can't you can't you cannot it's impossible going further the book of psalms psalm 51 and verse 5 psalm 51 and verse 5 here is david 
confessing to the Lord and confessing to the Lord the why behind his adultery, the why behind his murdering Bathsheba's husband, Uriah the Hittite, okay? Behold, he says, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Born in sin. Born in sin. Psalm 58, verse 3, says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. Again, the doctrine of original sin. And then, of course, there is always that classic and important text of Scripture that is often read, especially by those of us of the Reformed tradition when we are talking about total depravity. Jeremiah 17 and verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick, or as the old KJV puts it, desperately wicked. And you got to understand what that terminology is referring to. It means it's beyond cure. Desperately sick or desperately wicked means it is beyond, it is beyond cure. So there's nothing you're going to do to improve your sinful nature. Nothing. Nothing is going to improve. This is why you must be born again. This is why you have to have given to you by the grace of a sovereign God a new heart in the place of your old sinful heart. Okay? There is no such thing as self-improvement that is going to put you right with a holy God. The heart of man in his natural state in his fallen condition, the heart of man which speaks to the core of everything that he is, is beyond cure. It's beyond cure. So that's why regeneration by the Spirit is absolutely necessary. And then you go to the New Testament and you turn to Matthew chapter 15 and verse 19. And hear the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus, echoing, <laughs> echoing everything that we've just covered from those different snapshots out of the Old Testament. Matthew 15 and verse 19. Our Lord declares... But what comes out of the mouth, I'm starting in verse 18, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. That obviously is putting that in the context. Why did Jesus say that? Because you remember the scribes and Pharisees they were saying that the disciples were defiled because they hadn't washed their hands. They didn't fulfill the tradition of the elders. And our Lord just obliterates that idea. It's like, no, that's not what defiles somebody. No, defilement comes from within. Defilement comes out of the heart. Out of the heart, 
out of the heart come and proceed all this wickedness, which, of course, flies in the face of popular culture and popular psychobabble, which is always saying to us, the problem is the environment. That's the big problem that we're facing today. It's a bad environment. If we just get the environment right, then everything will be fine. No. No. The reason the environment's the way it is is because of the heart of man is desperately wicked. The heart of man is desperately wicked. That's why the environment is the way it is. But I digress. So, original sin, by definition describes our fallen sinful condition out of which actual sins occur. Scripture, therefore, does not tell us that we are sinners because we sin. Rather, it affirms that we sin because we are sinners. Very important you get the difference there. It is out of a fallen sinful nature that actual sins are committed. This means then that there is something inherently wrong with our character from birth. And everyday experience bears this out. So Proverbs 22.15 is rehearsing this truth to us as parents when it concerns the nature of our children. There is an inbred folly in our child. By folly is meant moral corruption which is speaking to the aforementioned sinful nature we're all born with. And because of this reality in the child, it then makes sense to the parent why rebellion and disobedience never requires instruction from the parent to the child. In other words, you don't have to train your child to be disobedient. That requires no instruction at all. They are disobedient by nature. By nature. Okay? Sin flows out of them without any effort on their part. It's the outflow of who they are. They are sinners by nature. And so it is for this reason, therefore, that discipline is absolutely necessary for the child. We cannot afford to leave our children to themselves, to their own nature, and dare think they'll be just fine. They'll be okay. That's not love, that's hatred. That's not love, that's hatred. Proverbs 13, 24 says it quite bluntly. Whoever spares the rod does what? What does it say? Hates his son. But he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Our children by nature are fixed in the path of sin and rebellion against God and man. To spare them the pain of the rod of discipline to refuse to correct them is not helping them, but harming them in the worst kind of way. Bruce Walkie wrote of such parents, 
that they actually turn their backs on their children and hand them over to death, social ruin, public exposure, calamity, and shameful poverty. In short, he said, unloving parents show their hate by handing their children over to evil. But the truly loving parent, the parent who seeks their child's greatest welfare, will be diligent to discipline them. They will be quick to expose the sin in their child by teaching their child the what and the why of their sin, but also giving their child the only remedy for their sin, which is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is what godly, loving parents do for their children because they know, they know, as God's Word teaches, that it is only by discipline done God's way that the inbred folly of the child will be driven far from him. This is because the child will be driven to Christ and away from their sin. But the essential point we're making here, according to what Proverbs teaches us, is that discipline is necessary for our children because our children are sinful by nature. They are sinful by nature. Again, folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Discipline, though, is not only for the sake of the child. In the second place, we also see that discipline is for the sake of the parents. It's for the sake of the parents. Proverbs 29, 17 teaches us, Discipline your son, and he, that is the disciplined child, will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. Wow. When parents are diligent to discipline their children, there is great reward to the parents. That's what this text is plainly teaching. Rest and delight will be benefits enjoyed by mom and dad. By the terms rest and delight are implied a freedom from physical distress and emotional anxiety and turmoil. Anthony Salvaggio, clearly he's Italian, commenting on Proverbs 29, 17, wrote this, to see a child increasingly learn to control his or her sinful impulses and to become polite, kind, humble, and respectful is truly a delight to a parent's soul. In addition, having obedient children also allows for a life that is, relatively speaking, more peaceful and orderly than if children are unruly and rebellious. The point is, when parents are diligent to discipline their children, the rewards are far greater in the long run than the momentary quasi-peace they may have whenever they overlook their child's sin and rebellion. Proverbs 29.15 speaks to this truth most clearly. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself does what? Bring shame to his mother. Hang on to those words. But a child left to himself, left to himself. Remember, folly is bound up in the heart of a child. You're going to leave them to themselves, you're leaving them to their folly. So a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. 
If diligent discipline reaps the reward of rest and delight for the parents, then the opposite is true. The opposite is true when parents refuse to discipline. They reap shameful disgrace, both privately and publicly, due to their constant compliance to their child's rebellion. We see this, for example, in 1 Samuel chapters 2 and 3 concerning the rebellion of Phinehas and Hophni, who were sons of Eli, a priest in Israel. What's so instructive for us is what God says in a declaration of judgment against Eli's house. In 1 Samuel 3.13, the Lord says, And I will declare to him, speaking of Eli, I will declare to Eli that I'm about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and, note this, and he did not restrain them. Notice the indictment God lays at the feet of Eli. Not at the feet of his sons, but at the feet of Eli, the dad, the father, the parent. He knew of his son's iniquity, but he did nothing. He did nothing to restrain them. Eli suffered public humiliation and disgrace because he left his sons to their own devices. You think that sin is repeated? Oh, yeah. That's repeated ad infinitum. Even by, even by Christian parents. Even by Christian parents. This price we see paid even by King David. His life clearly demonstrates the pain a parent receives due to their lack of exercising sufficient discipline. J.C. Ryle wrote of this in his article on the duties of parents. See to the case of David. Who can read without pain the history of his children and their sins? Amnon's incest, Absalom's murder and proud rebellion, Adonijah's scheming ambition. Truly these were grievous wounds for the man after God's own heart to receive from his own house. But was there no fault on his side? I fear there can be no doubt there was. I find a clue to it all in the account of Adonijah in 1 Kings 1.6. His father, speaking here of David, his father had not displeased him at any time in saying, Why hast thou done so? There was the foundation of all the mischief. David was an overindulgent father, a father who let his children have their own way, and he reaped according as he had sown. Bringing this home to his readers, J.C. Rowell exhorted, Parents, I beseech you for your children's sake, beware of overindulgence. I call on you to remember it is your first duty to consult their real interests and not their fancies and likings, to train them not to humor them, to profit not merely to please. 
You must not give way to every wish and caprice of your child's mind, however much you may love him. You must not let him suppose his will is to be everything and that he has only to desire a thing and it will be done. Do not, I pray you, make your children idols, lest God should take them away and break your idol just to convince you of your folly. Wow. Hard words. That's a hard admonition, a tough admonition. But beloved, don't ever think, don't ever think for one moment Don't ever think for one moment that, well, God would never do that. You don't know the God of the Bible if you think that. You don't know the God God of the Bible. You don't know the true God. What did the Lord say? The first commandment in the moral law. You shall have no other gods, what, before me, in addition to me. No other gods. What did Jesus say? Echoing that same truth, that same command in Matthew chapter 10. If you love father or mother more than me, our Lord said, you're not worthy of me. If you love son or daughter more than me, you're not worthy of me. Do you think the people of God have a problem with idolizing their kids? Oh, they do. Yes, they do. If you are guilty of that, I call you to repent. You do not want to test God on this. Trust me, you don't. Because the Lord can and he has every right to take the idol away. He is a jealous God. A jealous God. He says so. And we can make idols out of anything. But we can especially make idols out of our children. We need to be most careful that we don't do such a thing. But the necessity of discipline, it goes even further than the home. In the third place, we notice discipline is for the sake of society. It is for the sake of society. Proverbs 17 and verse 12 warns us, Let a man meet a she-bear robbed of her cubs rather than a fool in his folly. Hmm. Think of the contrast there. When parents refuse to discipline their children, then what do they send out into society but a foolish child that is now a foolish adult? Such adults, one writer observes, often go through life towing havoc behind and are incapable of influencing society in the direction of anything except shallowness and corruption. Raise a fool, send him or her out into the world, and you have harm more than your child. You have incrementally damaged your entire culture. Um, Are we seeing that somehow today? Is this not our world right here, right now? I mean, this is the world we live in. Indeed, this is our very nation. 
reflecting back on Eli and his sons, what they, the sons, were doing as priests in Israel, they were bringing judgment, sin and judgment, on the entire nation. Eli's absence in the home with little Phineas and Hophni gave the nation of Israel wicked men as priests who did not know the Lord and treated his law with contempt. And indeed, one of the saddest moments recorded in this entire affair is when Eli actually makes an attempt. It, it, it is so pathetic. He makes an attempt to rebuke his sons over their rebellion. But 1 Timothy chapter 2, 22-25 makes it clear it was too late. It was too late. They were firmly fixed in their folly as adults. Thus the words of their father did what? Fell to the ground. Fell to the ground. But the driving point here is that as Christian parents, we have to take the long view in the raising of our children. What kind of sons and daughters are we sending into the world? What kind? If we truly love our neighbor as we love ourselves, that is a commandment, right? That's out of the scriptures. So if we truly love our neighbor as we love ourselves, then the culture at large will be in our vision when it comes to child rearing. Are we raising God-fearing children who will take that wisdom with them into adulthood? Or are we raising rebels whose lives as adults will wreak havoc on everyone in whose path they enter? Listen to this, beloved. While we will not answer for everything our children do in adulthood, yet we will answer to God for where we failed them in the home under our watch when we weren't watching them at all. We will answer for that. And you see, that's what was happening to Eli, by the way. Eli was answering for that very sin. In the last place, though, we need to see the most obvious need for the discipline of our children. It is for the glory of God. It is for the glory of God. This is ultimately, as we all know, why we do everything we do as God's people. It is for God's glory. 1 Corinthians 10.31 sums it all up for us in one single statement. So whether you eat or drink, that is in the most mundane, everyday things you do, whether you eat or drink or in whatever you do. Well, I wonder what that would be, whatever you do. Or whatever you do, do all, do all to the glory of God. And how we glorify God in raising our children is by obeying and following the wisdom of God's word, which teaches us the absolute necessity for the discipline of our sons and daughters. It is to the glory of God alone, then, that we discipline our children. Since our children are a heritage from the Lord, as Psalm 27 and verse 3 plainly says, 
then to treat them as such is to be diligent and faithful in how we apply discipline to their lives according to God's standard. And thus to God's glory, to God's glory, we discipline our children. It should be very clear to see from what we have considered tonight from the Word of God that this key component in child rearing flies completely in the face of what the world says. It's the very thing that this ungodly fallen world says we should never do. Discipline. Discipline our kids. Know what the world here in our own nation wants to say to us. In fact, even the most conservative people in our own nation say to us, give your kids the American dream. That's what we should be doing. Raising them to follow and fulfill the American dream. Well, you do that, you send your kids to hell. Give them the American dream, you're sending them straight to eternal hellfire. To hell with the American dream. There's a way that seems right to a man, Proverbs tells us, but the end thereof is death. No, as a Christian parent, I want to give them the gospel. I want to give them God's ways. I want to bring them up in the wisdom of God and teach them about the fear of the Lord. I want to always be mindful of the fact that these children that I have in my home, they are a heritage from the Lord. They're not here by chance. They didn't show up by blind faith. The stork did not bring them. No, they are a heritage from the Lord. And so, as Christian parents, therefore, we must treat them as such. But doing so doesn't mean that we pamper them and we overindulge them. It means that we discipline them. By instruction, by correction, we bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. That is our stewardship. As parents, that is what we, we are responsible for that. And obviously I'm saying this to those of us who still have children at home. But that is our stewardship. The only question is for us as Christian parents is how are we managing that? What are we doing with that? Are we pursuing, are we pursuing this awesome responsibility and stewardship to the glory of God? Because our ultimate goal 
as Christian parents in everything we do, our ultimate goal is to bring our kids to Christ, to see them by the grace of God close with Jesus Christ. That is your ultimate goal in all your parenting, mom and dad. That's your ultimate goal. Everything else is secondary to that. Everything. Absolutely everything. What matters first and foremost always is that if my son and daughter have not closed with Christ, then I'm going to do everything in my power as a Christian parent to instill in them the gospel of Jesus Christ. I will not have their blood on my hands. If they leave home and they enter adulthood and they're and they're not converted to Christ, their blood will not be on my hands. It will not be because they never heard the gospel. They will hear it. They will be saturated in it. We cannot keep that out of our focus in parenting with everything that has been said here tonight in the end of it all. Let's pray. Our Holy Father, as parents, Lord, those of us who are, those of us who have been given this heritage from you and our children, we confess to you Our trembling, our fear, our grave weaknesses with this awesome responsibility that you've entrusted to us, even us, to raise these children you've given unto us in the way of the Lord. Heavenly Father, in whatever way that any of us as parents here tonight have fallen short of your standard in child rearing, and very specifically where we have fallen short in the right and in the constant and consistent and faithful disciplining of our children, Lord, we ask your forgiveness for sinning against you and harming our children by daring to refuse to discipline them by your standard in your way. We pray, Lord, that you will work in our hearts as parents a greater and mightier sanctification for the sake of our children, that, Lord, we will leave them more and more with you with the gospel of the Son of your love, Christ Jesus our Lord, then we will leave them with this world and all that this world offers for anyone to gain but to the loss of their soul. We trust in you, Lord, that you will move on us and you will sanctify us to be more faithful to instill in our children the saving gospel of Jesus Christ our Lord. And we do pray earnestly, Lord, that in your great mercy you will save our children to the uttermost, that you will bring them 
to close with Christ, calling them out of darkness into your marvelous light, that they, like their parents, may proclaim your praises because they have become by your grace your people. This, Lord, is our ultimate hope in you alone. This is our ultimate plea before you in everything that we do and desire and want for our children. And thus these things we pray and petition you for in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord, and for his sake. Amen. And amen.